did I not see this coming? Welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today I am interviewing a good friend of mine, Liz Phillips. Liz, can you say hello? Hi. Okay, so you and I met, gosh, three years ago, three or four years ago. I don't even remember. It was on a fern project down in Short Creek, right? Yeah, it was actually one year ago. Oh my gosh. This year. It was, you yep, only came, it. you only started coming last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I came to the one last May. I came again in October and then this time again. In my memory, you've been there from the start. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I have one of those faces. <laughs> I feel like I've always known you. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, you're just like this cool person on our, you know, we do these service projects down in Short Creek and you came and hit it off with everybody and just sort of fit right in. And then I found out a little bit about your background, which we're going to talk about today. That's why you're on the podcast. So uh, now we have a standing joke um, amongst our group. And basically that is that you are the daughter of a prophet as well. So we have Roy Jeffs, who's the son of a prophet on our project. We have some kids of independence on our project. And now we have other fundamentalist royalty. And we're going to talk about that tonight. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, why don't you, let's walk through the beginning. Um, let's talk about your childhood, where you were born, um, and your family a little bit. Okay. I was actually born Christmas morning at my Aunt Donna's house in Harriman. So my mom likes to tell the story that she knew she was going into labor and she's going to have me. So she scrubbed down the house, packed up all the presents packed up all the kids because I'm nine of 10 and headed out to my Aunt Donna's house, which is where we spent a lot of Christmases and labored through the night and had me in the morning about 530 in the morning. So I was born at my Aunt Donna's house on Christmas morning. And my older siblings like to tell me often that I was the best Christmas present they could ask for. Well, that's sweet. So nine out of 10 and then so almost the baby of the family. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we have one younger. <laughs> so you were at your Aunt uh, Donna's house and born on Christmas Day. So that's kind of a special story. Talk to me about the community you grew up in. I felt like I was pretty lucky because I felt like being, I knew from a very early age that I was Rulin Allred's granddaughter. Um, at least while I was growing up, the stories of my grandpa, Rulin Allred, were very prominent. I grew up listening to so many stories about him that I just really felt this connection to him. And I was so proud to be his granddaughter. And my parents really instilled in us that we were just this chosen people 
And we were so lucky, and I must have been so righteous in the heavens to be able to come down here and be part of this family. So I grew up kind of just feeling really special, even though we were dirt poor. And I, but I was also lucky in the fact that our group was very liberal in that we were poor, but we didn't necessarily have to dress differently and we didn't live all in the same community. So my mom really encouraged us to go to public schools, to take seminary. Um, my grandpa had this really big love for the church and he, he instilled that in my mom who therefore instilled, instilled it into her kids. So we were encouraged to kind of live in the world, just not of the world. So I grew up going to public schools, um, elementary school, junior high, high school, and we just learned to lie where we were coming from. But when I was really little, I just had tons of brothers and sisters. We would my we would celebrate my dad's birthday and we would all get together and there would just be so many people to play with. He never got bored. I would have sleepovers at my mom's houses and I just thought it was the best thing in the world because I would be there and my dad could show up and it would be like, there's my dad at this sleepover. I loved it. And my moms were so kind to me and just loved me. And I remember thinking I was just the luckiest girl. I have such happy, fond memories of growing up in polygamy when I was really little. I just thought I was just so lucky. Let's back up for just a minute for those who aren't aware who Roland Allred is. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you should all know who that is. But he was the famous leader of the All Red Group, the AUB Apostolic United Brethren, which was a fundamentalist group. Um, it still is a fundamentalist group, but Rulin was sort of this beloved, iconic figure. Of course, he was famously murdered um, by another rival polygamist group, and we've covered all of that in the podcast. But that was your grandfather. Why don't you talk to us sort of, um, this is a complicated question for you, but Lay out your family tree for us. How are you related to Rulin? Who's your dad? And all of that. Okay. So, like I said previously, Rulin Allred was my grandpa, and Rulin had seven wives. And my grandma was Athleen Mills, and she came from the mainstream LDS church. She was 18 when she met Rulin, and she just fell in love with him. She told her parents, this is as far as I understand the story. She told her parents that she was going to go to the grocery store and she ended up running away with my grandpa, Rulin Allred. And I think, and I could be incorrect because it's all muddled together, but I think she was the fifth wife out of the seven. So, um, so, so that's my grandpa and grandma. And then that Ashley Mills is my grandma. So then it's my mom. And then that's what makes me Rulin's granddaughter. So, so you come and then my through dad, Rulin through your oh, maternal side. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. So you come through Rulin through your maternal side? Yes, okay. through my mom's side, yeah. Yep. And then, um, and then on my dad's side, my dad is Lynn A. Thompson, which is currently the prophet of the AUB, the Apostolic United Brethren, which growing up, he was just on the council, which is basically um, parallel to the apostles of the mainstream LDS church. That's kind of what we count. We called them council members growing up. So he was part of the council members 
for a long time, all growing up, but I never thought growing up that he would one day be the leader of the AUB. So that's my dad. Okay. So yeah, Lynn Thompson, current, can we use the term profit? So I don't know. It's really tricky. So I remember growing up, my mom said, your grandpa Rulin never claimed he was the prophet. His keys, his only keys were to keep polygamy alive. So she was very resistant to use the word prophet with Rulin's brother after Rulin was murdered. His brother took over Owen. She was very resistant to use that word for Rulin or anyone that came after. But times have changed. And I've heard a lot of people claim that the prophet's that now they are called prophets. So I've heard my dad be called a prophet, but I do know that a lot of, especially the old school AUB believers that were alive when my grandpa was alive or uncle Owen was alive, they just called them leaders, not necessarily prophets, but I've heard that that's kind of changed because they feel like the church has strayed more and more. And so now they are using that term. I'm not quite sure how firm they use that term. Okay, can you lay out the politics of that for people a little bit? Why? I mean, so in the history of fundamentalism for a long time, my understanding is that a lot of groups believe the LDS Church still had some keys, some authority, but not all. And it sounds like that's similar to what your belief system was. Yeah, that's what I grew up being taught from my mom was our, our... the dream, what they hoped and what they um, knew was going to happen was that the church had its role where it would have missionaries and send out missionaries and get converts. And then if those people were striving and seeking for the whole truth, for the all the truth, then they would find the AUB, then they would find uh, that group. And so that's that's kind of, so the church had a role. That's why we didn't need missionaries in in the AUB was because that was the church's role. So it was the church's job to kind of do the nitty gritty, like the missionary work, the temple work, the, all these different things. And then if you wanted to seek more truth, then you would be able, the Lord would lead you to the AUB and then you could get the whole truth. But they never claimed, at least me growing up, and my mom always said that we never claimed to hold all the keys. We didn't do absolutely everything. It was our job was keep polygamy alive until Christ came again, and then we would show the mainstream Mormon church how to live polygamy because we kept it alive. So when Christ would come, when the second coming would come, that would be our job. Yeah, that's a great way to to phrase it. And I think... I want to hear more about your story, but maybe let's just get into some of the basic AUB tenants, maybe that would make you different from the LDS church. And then I want to talk about how you interacted with the LDS people, because like I said, I'm trying to think of a delicate way to phrase this. When I met you, this is going to come out wrong no matter how I say it. I feel like you were one of us. And, um, and that's such a terrible thing to say, but like, I thought you were LDS, you know, and you kind of were, but also not. Yeah. I don't quite know how that happened, to be honest. (laughs) Um, I feel like part of it was probably the way that my mom raised us. Um, my dad was definitely a conspiracy theorist. So I grew up with him saying, oh, the Russians control the weather or 
um, they, he would come home with some weird contraption that you would hold in your hands and they would send electronic currents through your body and it would cure cancer. Or, I mean, he just always had some new thing that he discovered that was happening. I mean, the government was out to get us. It was just a lot of that. And I feel like he wasn't home enough to really implant those into the kids, into my mom's kids. My mom kind of carried down the, we need to live in the world. We need to live of the world. But to answer your previous question about how I interacted with the LDS growing up, it was a very complicated relationship. So um, I, I guess I kind of felt gypped. So we lived on one street. It was a dead end street. And we had my next door neighbors were my cousins. They were Uncle Owen's kids and grandkids. And so we were related. And the LDS, the mainstream LDS kids on our, on our street were very mean they were not kind. Um, I, I know that they got in fights with my older siblings, but by the time I got along or came along, they just threw rocks at us from across the street. So they would yell at us and throw rocks at us and yell at us, you stupid plague kids. And one summer we had a family move into our street and they had these girls that were the exact same ages as my sister and I, and we were so excited. And so we played that whole summer and someone must have told them that we were polygamous because one day I walked over and asked if my friend could play. And her mom came out and said, you're not going to play with my kids anymore because you're a play kid. You're not allowed to play with them anymore. And I remember walking home that day just devastated because I had no control over that, but they were not nice to us. And that family actually became the bishop of that local ward. And then he became the stake president and many, many, many years later, I had an opportunity to talk to him about those experiences and how it really hurt. And he said, oh, yeah, that's just how I taught my kids. And that's how my I was taught growing up was to stay away from them. And they were wicked and evil. And so he really never apologized or felt bad for what he had taught his kids or how he had taught his kids that we were just like the scourge of the earth. We were just an embarrassment. They we were, I, I learned really early on to lie about it for multiple reasons, but one of them was just so I could have friends without people judging me and, and um, not letting their parents be my friend. That was one of the many reasons why we just started lying. And this is so interesting because I, I talk to people about this all the time, but the biggest persecutors of polygamists and fundamentalists are the LDS from across yeah. the board everyone will say that though and knowing the history it's so strange that that we ended up here um you know it used to be that yeah. we had a common em- enemy which was the government you know outsiders but we really sort of turned we talk about mimetic violence on this podcast but we sort of turned that our biggest fears onto ourselves so so where at this point where are you growing up what part of utah um and what is your I- living situation like um, I grew up in West Jordan my whole life. Um, I think my mom, I, think, I can't remember how long we'd been living there. I mean, just a very, very long time for years. Um, and I think, so we had this downstairs apartment where other wives could live. My mom was the first wife 
Um, and then there were four wives following that. By the time I came along, because I was the ninth out of the 10, there was one, the, I think the second to youngest wife was living there, but just for a short while. Um, my mom used to say, your dad finally figured out that separated wives are happy wives. They just don't do well living on top of each other. So I had moms in Bluffdale and Sandy and Lehigh, just kind of all over. They were scattered all over or and in Harriman. And so I lived in West Jordan with just basically just my mom. And then my brothers and sisters were basically my cousins. They weren't, they didn't feel like brothers and sisters. They felt like cousins because we didn't live with each other. Okay. So, um, you grew up and at, at this time you're going to public school. So with your neighbors, you're going to school with these kids who are taught to look down on you. Yeah. How yeah, did they know was... that you were polygamous? I'm just curious. Sorry, say that again. How did they know that your family was a plural family? Um, so our next door neighbors, Uncle Owen's grandkids, they had a couple kids that just told everybody. I mean, every, any new family that would move in or anything, they, and, and I think part of it was it didn't damage them at all because those kids went to the AUB's private school. So there was a private school that the AUB still runs today, um, but they would drive clear out to Bluffdale every day to go to this school. And so they went to this private school and uh, us, our family had the reper- repercussions of this family next to us telling everyone in the neighborhood that we were polygamists and we lived on a dead end street. So I think that was to our detriment too. There just wasn't a lot of homes. So everybody kind of knew everybody. And so then they knew very quickly. So, so did we you, learned, did you I learned go by to, junior high just to lie. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, there's a delay. Did you go to like a regular LDS ward sometimes? Did you do things with, you know, the primary as a kid? No, never. The AUB had a primary that was every Thursday afternoon at like four. So that's where I would go to primary. I never went to an LDS church. We used to memorize who the bishop was in our ward so that we could lie um, to people, to kids at school that would meet. So they go, oh, are you LDS? And by the time I was older, probably fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade, I learned to say yes. And then if they asked you, oh, you know, who's your bishop or what ward are you in? I would recite the ward that I was supposed to be in and I would recite who the bishop was at that time. And then if by off chance they were in my ward, like, oh, I haven't seen you. And then I would say, oh, well, I'm a Jack Mormon or, oh, you know, my family just doesn't really like to go that much. But I was kind of coached to do that by my mom. So she'd figure out who the bishop was and where the ward was and what the name was. And then she'd say, okay, this is what you say. Um, she would, she instilled that fear in us because she grew up with the 1950 raids. I mean, her dad ended up in prison, Rulin Allred ended up in prison. And so she had these really big fears. Her mom and dad sat her down, sat all the kids down and said, if the police come and they come to arrest us, you run out into the cornfields and you run and you run and you don't stop. And if you get caught and the state tries to take you, then you tell them that you want to live with uncle and aunt so-and-so who were LDS. So it was like, so she instilled this fear that if you say anything and, and 
the state finds out, you will lose us. And as a child, that is the scariest thing, especially if you think your parents are amazing and your childhood is wonderful. It was a huge fear that carried throughout my life of just losing my parents. It went, as soon as I learned how to lie, it was something I carried through junior high and high school. And it wasn't until I could be completely honest about where I was that I kind of let go of that fear because I was scared. I remember having nightmares of running through the dark and having the corn hit me in the face as I was trying to run as fast as I could. And, and that wasn't even something I ever experienced, but it was something that my mom passed down to us. So we learned to lie because we didn't want to lose our mom and dad. Yeah. And that's something that we talk a, a lot about. And in my opinion, plays into th- this idea of polygamy being taboo and illegal has really allowed people to feel fear and fear of outsiders. And it sounds like that that is similar in your experience as well. So so you grew up learning how to lie to um, the LDS people. And so not only are you stigmatized if it's found out that you're polygamous, but in West Jordan, Utah, especially, you know, when you and I were kids, very LDS, being a Jack Mormon or inactive is no easy thing either. No, no, but it was safer than being polygamous. So it was worth it. <laughs> Because once I was found out that I was polygamous, I mean, there was just no contact. So people would talk to you if they knew that, you know, you were inactive or maybe they could get you to church. But once you were polygamous, that was sort of the death knell. Yeah, I think it was a fear. I mean, my assumption, my experiences were a lot of LDS people had this fear that if they, if those polygamists could get you, they would convert you and then you would join polygamy. So, and, and it kind of did happen. I mean, Rulin Allred, my grandpa encouraged a lot of his members, especially if they only had one wife to start being active in the mainstream LDS church, go to church for a year, get baptized, go through the temple, get your endowments, and then leave. That was happening, happening very consistently. So alarming that the church had to start really buckling down on the um, people, the polygamists joining the mainstream LDS church, but that was encouraged by my grandpa. My mom and dad did it and they did it with the, they joined the church with the intent of leaving again. That's interesting. I haven't heard that. And and why, why? Um, because at that time there was no endowment. Well, so the AUB has an endowment house. They don't call it a temple because they don't do baptisms for the dead or other ordinances, but they do have an endowment house. So um, they didn't have that before. So that's how they would get the garments is going through the mainstream LDS temples. So it wasn't until later. And I want to say it was after my grandpa was murdered that they went, um, I think it was Rob Williams admitted in a deposition that he stole the um, endowment covenants or whatever they were from the Seattle temple and brought them into the AUB to be used. So it was a long time that there wasn't garments or endowments. So that's ruling encouraged that. So why, why though would they want to leave, like join it and leave again? Did they just anticipate being excommunicated when it was found out? Oh yeah. Yeah. And they were fine with that. Because they had the whole truth, so they didn't mind being excommunicated. 
that's another thing that I've learned from my fundamentalist friends is excommunication. I'm not going to say it's not a big deal, but it's almost a badge of honor if, if you've been excommunicated yeah. from the LDS church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you grow up uh, having this complicated relationship with your other Mormon neighbors, but it sounds like mostly your family, your family life was a positive experience. How many mothers did you have? Five moms. Five moms. And did you get along with all of them? I personally did. I feel like if you were to talk to other siblings of mine, I feel like there would be different experiences, but I was a very um, go lucky, happy kid. that was just happy to be alive and around and um, I did. I missed a lot of the drama or the anger or the frustration that maybe happened among the wives or maybe among the older kids. Um, my mom and dad were in love, definitely. My dad would come home once every five nights because there were five wives. And he would walk in the door and my mom would start singing and he would start singing and they would dance around the kitchen. And so I just assumed that's what he did with all the other wives. And it wasn't until I became older and talked to some of the other siblings that came from other wives that that was not the case. So I just had no idea because I only had seen him interact with my mom on a consistent basis. I just assumed he did that with all the wives, but it didn't sound like it. So I had great experience with all the other wives. They were all very kind to me. Let me sleep over. We had, there were siblings the same age. And so they were great. They were my aunt Rachel. Um, she taught me how to play cards. My aunt Donna would, you know, give me hugs. My aunt Colleen is actually my mom's sister, like blood sister that came from Rulin and Athleen. She was never able to have any kids and she would have me sleep over and eat cold cereal in the morning, which was just a huge treat because we were so poor. And I just remember thinking, I'm so lucky I get eat cold cereal. And she would read me bedtime stories. So I really just had this, I just thought, oh my gosh, it's so many people that love me and think I'm so great. And so I loved it. My moms were very kind. So while while we're in this part of it, do you want to say anything about the dynamic of growing up in a plural family or what it's like, you know, between wives? I know those are always the questions that people have. Um, and the one thing that I want to say that that I've learned with this podcast is everyone wants the the dirt, right? Like all the jealousy and all the wives that don't get along. But being in a monogamous marriage for so long and having so many monogamous friends, I can say that those problems are not limited to plural marriage, right? You know, relationships are hard in general. But what, what do you want to say just about polygamy in general? Mm. Well, my personal experience was I was very naive and not very aware of the dynamics of any of the other wives. I did not hear my mom gossip about any of the other moms. And I don't know if that's accurate or if that's just me running around being just happy to be alive. I always, my perception of it was they were all very good people trying their best to do good. That's what it felt like to me. Even when I decided to leave polygamy at age 16, it was not because I didn't want to be someone's sister wife. And it wasn't because I had such a horrible example of what it meant to live polygamy. It had nothing to do with that. I I can't decide if it was just I was naive or I, I don't know, but I felt like I 
picked all the good stuff and just kind of kept with it. But I, I know now as an adult, they had a lot of issues and that my dad had a favorite wife and, and that it was really hard. I mean, some of my moms lived in abject poverty. My mom went back to work when I was in kindergarten because she was tired of living in poverty. And then my dad just stopped giving her money altogether because he was, Oh, she's at work. So I know there was a lot of issues. I know my mom struggled with my dad a lot. Um, and I just really didn't hear about it when I was really little. I feel like either I missed it or it just wasn't talked about. But obviously, there were some struggles or they would all live together in the same house. So clearly, there was some issues that I just wasn't aware of because I was part of the end of the family. So I didn't get to see. I think they worked out a lot of the kinks by the time I came along and kind of figured out how to work, work it out. I don't know if you're uncomfortable answering this because it's not your story necessarily, but are you comfortable saying who your dad's favorite wife was? Um, from what I understand from talking to my other siblings, it sounds like it was my mom, but I wouldn't, I, but I don't know. I mean, he never admitted it, but from what I saw, I saw, I saw they were clearly in love and loved being together and loved spending time together and so it didn't sound like it was like that with the other wives, but I don't know because I didn't really pay attention or notice, but it seemed like my mom was his favorite, but I don't really know. I can't speak for that specifically. You have this sort of idyllic childhood with the exception of you did feel some discrimination. Are there any other times that you felt really hurt or discriminated against because of who your parents were? Um, no, just mainly just mainly in school. And um, because of the sect of polygamy that I belonged to, we blended very well into society. So I had short hair, I was able to wear shorts and short sleeves. And so I didn't, and being a white female in Utah, I could blend very well into just society. So it was funny because when I married my husband, I knew I had grown up in polygamy and we would be out to a movie or we would be out somewhere. And I'd say, I'd point someone out and go, Oh, that's so-and-so, or I, that's the person in my group. And you just have no idea. They're everywhere. And you don't know because they don't look any different than anyone else. So I don't feel like I was discriminated against unless my story preceded me. And can we talk a little bit about the blending in? Because I do think, you know, I always call the AUB Pinterest polygamists because so many of them are like blonde with highlighted hair and the cute matchy outfits and the chevron skirts. And it, by all appearances, they do really fit in sort of that hyper cutesy, crafty Pinterest culture. I know that's a giant stereotype, but um, they're, they're very much like the LDS women culture in Utah. Yeah, I feel like that came from my grandpa Rulin. Um, my mom would often talk about how her dad had this love for the Mormon church. I mean, Rulin did come from the Mormon church. So he carried that love, at least I felt it. And I felt like the um, AUB and the group really has carried that through where they kind of have fallen parallel in with the LDS, the mainstream LDS church in um, the styles and 
the way they grew up and how they interact with the outside world. I have half siblings that are that's a dentist and a doctor and and paramedic and I mean just these people just go out in the world and live their lives and try to be part of it. What so would you yeah, say, it does seem like that. We can blend in pretty well. What would you say would be the major differences between you and LDS? Um, apparently the Adam God doctrine was a big thing that my mom would talk about. And I did not dive into exactly what that meant, what the mainstream LDS church believes in, and then what the AUB believes in, but it was something to do with Brigham Young and how he taught it and then how the church teaches it. So that's one of the sticky points. The other one is obviously polygamy. And then because they broke off early on, uh, blacks cannot hold the priesthood. So that was the other thing. That's really, those are really the three key main points of the differences between the AUB and the mainstream LDS. Okay. And we can get into some of those, um, in a minute. Like I'm going to ask you some more specific questions, but okay, let's get back to your story. So now take us through your junior high and high school years. Okay, so uh, by the time I hit junior high, I had mastered the art of lying about where I came from, where I had come from. And so I got this new set of friends. I was a, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, no, sorry to interrupt you. This is just a question that people ask me all the time. How do polygamists justify lying about their lifestyle religiously? Um, Quite easily. Because if you feel like God's law is above the law of the land, then you are justified in your lying because God will support you in that. So I felt justified in lying to because I felt that I held the higher truth and that I was protecting my parents and protecting me. So I felt completely justified in my, and I'm sure part of it was self-preservation. I got so tired of not being able to be friends with the LDS kids who had the same beliefs as I did and being thrown out or cast away with a bunch of the kids that I had no commonalities with. Being friends with a non-LDS person was a lot different because in the AUB, we believed in the Book of Mormon, we believed in the Bible, we believed in all of these similar things, and then to be cast out and saying, you can't be friends with us, I didn't have a lot in common with the people that were not LDS, so it made it really hard. I'm sure a lot of the lying had to do with self-preservation. I wanted to be friends with people that were similar. Interesting. Okay. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think that that's no, an important that's okay. thing. And I do think, you know, this has really helped shape my views on the politics of legalization just, or, you know, criminalization of polygamy, just because I do think that once you justify that you can, if something's illegal and you can justify why you should be able to do it anyway, I've seen so many different people use that rationale to justify way more sinister things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, secrecy, and shame and all of those things kind of breed on themselves. And so if you're going to be secret about this, then you can be, you can justify being secret about something else. And so it's a very hard um, to be polygamous because, and to lie because you, and it's very confusing, especially as, 
a child to know you need to lie about certain things, but you need to be honest. And, and that's what you're taught from, you know, primary ages, don't lie and be honest. And, and if you break something, you tell them and you be honest, but then, you know, these bigger, heavier things you have to lie about for self-preservation, for preservation of your family. And because you're holding all the truth. And you're just so lucky and so blessed. And so I actually had an LDS friend in sixth grade and she goes, tell me about your church. And I said, well, it's like your church, but we're better. And I was (laughs) looking back on that. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, why did she stay friends with me? I can't believe that came out of my mouth. But that's how I felt like, oh, we are the LDS church, but we're better. Just so you that, know, as an LDS girl, I said the same exact thing to my Methodist friend. So it wasn't just you. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so, yeah. So by the time I hit junior high, there was a whole set of people. The school was bigger. There were more people. And I just kind of sloughed off any person that would have known me in elementary school and judged me and grown up on my street or in my ward and just set out to find a new group of friends. And by then I had kind of practiced and articulated how to lie and what to say and what not to say and how to just blend in and seem LDS. So I was able to get just this great group of friends that I'm still friends with today because I lied and told them I was LDS. And then when they would go to steak dances or things like that, I'd be like, oh, I'm busy that night or oh, I forgot to get my dance card or, you know, just make up these little white lies. And they would come to my house and my two older sisters were married to the same man. And there were those, they both had wedding pictures on our wall. And so my friends would come over and be like, what the, there's, they're this, oh, no, 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 they're twins. They're twins. That's so-and-so. And and this is so-and-so. And And isn't that crazy? My sister married twins. So it's really good at lying and saying, you know, and oh, where's your dad? Oh, he works construction. He's out of town a lot. Yeah. So I was really good at just making up those little white lies anytime something came up. So tell us about who your dad really was. Aside from the lies, who was he? What was he doing? Where did he come from? My dad worked construction my whole life. And I don't really know if he was a general contractor or just worked construction because I never went to work with him. But He was a very funny guy. He could tell the dumbest, funniest dad jokes. And you'd just roll your eyes and laugh because they were so funny. Um, And he has this thick head of hair and it was black. And so when he'd come home, we'd get water, a cup of water and a comb. And we would do all these crazy hairstyles in his hair. And he would just sit there and let us comb his hair and stick a little elastics in his hair and braid his hair and he didn't really have especially long hair, but just had a lot. So I have memories of him coming home and I'd sit him on a chair and just start combing through his hair and we'd show mom and it was so fun. And so he had parts of him that were just, he was funny and fun and charismatic and great. And then he was really mean. (laughs) He, um, by the time I came along, I think he kind of stepped back from parenting and I think it worked better Uh, My mom would tell me stories about she would stuff socks into the baby's mouth so they wouldn't cry so that he couldn't get mad. So that to me breaks my heart. But I think that's kind of how he parented things. I mean, kids just bugged him. 
he would come home from being gone five days and he'd walk in the door and we'd all, Oh dad, we're so excited to see you. And he'd turn to my mom and be like, why do they do that? Why do they always, why every time I walk in the door, they're always yelling at me and it's just so annoying. And those certain points were very pivotal to me because I, I mean, I hadn't seen him forever. And then for him to treat us like that was very disheartening. Um, he had no patience for the boys. Um, so my mom would say to him, oh, I'm really tired. I need to go take a nap. And he'd say, oh, yeah, you can go take a nap. And so one specific time, he said, you can go take a nap. And he laid down next to her. And my older brother, Louis, and my older sister, Lene, we were sitting there scratching this paint off of this old red dresser. And we could hear him yelling through the wall, like, you guys knock it off. That's, you know, it's really annoying. We can hear you. And of course, we kept scratching at it because we were little kids. And he came storming in the room and picked up my brother and just threw him across the room. And I remember my brother hitting the wall and sliding down the wall, just crying and sheer fear. I I just thought, oh, my gosh, he's going to do that to me next. And And he didn't. He didn't ever touch us. He would leave. But he had... He just, us kids annoyed him. I learned very early on to keep my mouth shut and to be quiet. I mean, he had the longest prayers and the shortest temper. So that was kind of the dad that I had. He just didn't care to have any specific relationship with any of the kids unless you asked for it and you did it in a way that he approved. So you didn't get to be loud or obnoxious or make him mad. But if you wanted to go talk to him about one of his conspiracy theories about like drinking his own pee or having an emu farm, because that's going to save us when the second coming comes and it's going to be cold and the cars aren't going to work and we're all going to freeze and be hungry. If you wanted to talk to him about those things, he could talk your ear off and tell you all of everything he believed. But if it had anything to do with you or if you were being annoying that wasn't an option. So he really, when I look back on him, I mean, he's just in snippets of my childhood and a lot of them were not great. He just wasn't very nice. I kind of would dodge him when he'd come home. Would you say that you felt afraid of him? (sighs) That's a good question. I think when I was really little, I did. Um, Not when I was in junior high and high school. I feel like I kind of understood what he expected and I conformed to that. So by the time I was, I think little kids must have annoyed him or maybe I just did specifically. But by the time I grew up, we had a very loose but good relationship. I mean, he was, he didn't seem to get as angry but I wasn't little anymore. I was in junior high and high school and I had learned how to survive in his family and how to talk to him and what he expected and how he expected me to be. You're in junior high and high school. When does it, when do things start to change from this like happy go lucky child who's just happy to be there to someone who has to, who feels like they have to escape? Um, that's a good question. So I had lied to my friends in junior high. And then they followed me into high school and I had just this huge group of amazing friends and they just assumed I was LDS. And my older sister, who is two years older than me, decided to join the LDS church. And I'm not quite sure how her journey started or why she had decided that, but 
all of a sudden it put me into this conundrum of my sister's about to be baptized. She's a senior at this time. I'm a sophomore. She's, she's going to get baptized and everyone's going to figure out putting two and two together that I'm not LDS. If my sister is getting baptized, obviously I didn't get baptized. And we kind of all, we all were in choir together. So we had mutual friends or mutual siblings. I mean, there was no way my friends were not going to figure out that my sister was getting baptized and that I wasn't LDS. And that really scared me. I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to talk to them? What am I going to say? Um, I was, I was just worried sick. I'm going to lose all my friends. And um, I think that's when I really started to question whether I wanted to be in, I, I think that was the very first time I reflected back on my life and thought, huh, I can choose something different. Can I choose something different? Is that even an option? I never even assumed it was an option. I just thought I'll just go along my merry way. And there's one moment I remember specifically, I was sitting at church at the AUB in their afternoon meeting and I was up on the balcony and I always took notes and uncle Owen was speaking. He was the current leader of the AUB. And he said, what makes our break off of the church, the correct break off. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, you just called us a break off. Well, then how could we even be anything more than a break off if we're a break off how that and and I don't even remember what he said after that I'm sure he had some points that I didn't even listen because my brain was stuck on that wait a minute you're calling us a break off you're not even saying we hold everything you're saying we're a break off so I wrote it in my journal I had all these questions and my sister of course read my journal because that's what older sisters do and she stopped me and she goes, can I just bear my testimony to you? And I said, sure. And she just bore her testimony about, you know, Latter-day Prophets. And, and I don't even remember exactly what she said. And I remember this like light switch of like, I don't want to be polygamous. And if my sister can do it and get out, I can do it and get out. And so I think I kind of rode on her coattails of, her leaving. And then I just kind of followed. The problem was her leaving. My dad felt like it was too late. And so then when he heard I was leaving, he felt like he had to stop it before he had a mass exodus or something. So she, she got out a little bit cleaner than I did because my dad was pretty upset. I think he was upset about both of them, but he probably felt like he could talk to me more. So by then I decided, you know what, I'm going to join the LDS church too. So I picked my two best friends and I said, I have something to tell you. And I didn't tell them right away. And they just assumed something horrible had happened to me. They had no idea. They, and I finally pulled them aside and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm polygamous. polygamous. My dad has five wives and just kind of dumped it on them. And they were so relieved that it wasn't something else like getting raped or something horrible because their minds had just gone crazy that they were like, Oh my gosh, that's it. Okay. And, and I said, and I'm getting baptized. And I think then it just kind of spread through the school. So then I started telling other friends that I wasn't as close to, but they were still in my group of friends. But I think the thing that made it okay was me not saying, hey, I'm polygamous. It was, and I'm joining your church. So it was like, oh, okay, then you're, you're good. It's okay. 
that you grew up polygamous because you want to join the church. So then it was like, I was still fine with them. So I was able to keep all of my friends, but because I was the child of a polygamous leader, I was not able, well, a polygamist, I was not able to get baptized until I was 18. So my sister got baptized. It was so exciting. And then I just got to sit and wait. And my dad spent the next two years trying to convert me back into polygamy. And it wasn't like he didn't lock me in a room, but he definitely made it miserable. But the problem was he wasn't around very much when I was a kid and he didn't have a lot of parental influence on me and he wasn't that great of a dad. So by the time he sat down to share all of his truths with me, they didn't have a lot of weight. So he would tell me, go read a leaf in review from Byron Harvey Allred. It was Ruland's dad. And he had written this book about how the church had strayed from the fundamental principles and all these different reasons. And he gave me the book, like, you need to read this. And I remember just saying, I'm not going to read it. You don't get to tell me what to do. You haven't been around. So at from 16 on, you know, I just kind of, it was a waiting game to be baptized when I was 18. How did your decision to be baptized affect your relationship with your mother? She was good. She, I think she got disenchanted. My experience was when I was a teenager, my dad's brother, Joe Thompson, was accused by his kids of molestation. And I think it broke my mom. I remember walking into the front room. I was, I think I was in either junior high or high class. That's about the age teenager-ish. And she was sitting on the floor just sobbing. And I think it broke everything. So when I came to her and said I wanted to join the church, she just said, I just want you to be happy. That's all I want. And so she supported me, but quietly without my dad really knowing. I mean, she supported me, but she would never say it in front of my dad. So she was fine with me going to church and deciding to be baptized. And she had no problem with it. It didn't change anything with my mom. Was there anyone in your family other than your dad who found it very controversial or was upset with you? I mean, it's kind of funny that your way to rebel against your parents is to join a sister church, right? (laughs) Right. That was my, that was my rebellious stage. (laughs) Um, No, I'd have to say, I think a lot of it had to do with where I was in the family. I was at the end of the 36 kids of the 36 siblings I had. I just, by the time I was a teenager, I wasn't extremely close to those half siblings. And so then me deciding to join the church didn't really affect them. And I don't know, I can't speak for their experiences or how they felt, but I was never treated differently by any of them. Even my older siblings who I knew and loved never treated me differently when I decided to join the church. The biggest issue was with my dad. So no, it it didn't change anything. So when people ask me, oh, how did you escape? And and I'm like, I didn't. I lived at home and I got baptized and I still lived at home. I know my dad tried to kick me out. I remember that conversation. He said, you know, if you decide to join the church, I'm going to kick you out. And I was scared and I called my LDS friends and said, you know, can I live with you? Because my dad wants to kick me out. And later that night, my mom came to me and said, he can't kick you out. He's not even here. How is he? You get to live here as long as you want to. 
So she never said that in front of him, but she must have talked to him at some point because I was never actually kicked out. Let's talk about the word escape for a minute. Did is that why is that a problematic word for your situation? Um, I feel like my experience with when people find out I come from a polygamous background, the information that they have a lot of times comes from the news, and then that's the prairie dresses and Warren Jeffs and child brides and molestation and all of these things. And none of that has been my life. I've lived in the world. I had short hair. I had jeans. I went to public schools. And so, and I was able to stay at home. I never felt like I had to completely run away from where I came from. I very much, when I joined the church, I would sit through interviews with bishops and stake presidents and they would tell me your parents are going to hell because of the choices that they're making. They're living in adultery. They're wicked. And I remember thinking at 16, 17, 18, no, they're not. You don't know my parents. You don't know the good they're trying to do. You don't know how good they are. You don't know what they do. You don't see them in their everyday lives. You don't get to decide that for me and you don't get to decide that for them. So it, it just never felt like I had to escape. I felt very loved by my mom and by my siblings. They never mistreated me. So that is a problematic word for me because it never felt that way. It wasn't my experience. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the general assumption that it, like if you, <laughs> You know, even in the LDS church, if you lose your faith, no one's like, you escaped the LDS church. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, oh, yeah. do you want to talk about the controversy involving your dad at all? Sure. I mean, I can just talk to you about uh, my experiences with it and how it shaped my life. Um, but yeah, and that's, you know, of course, what I'll share because I can't speak for other people and their experiences. So yeah. Um, are you talking about the molestation accusations? What exactly yeah, are you that talking and, about? And I guess some of the politics that are happening now, and again, this is your family. So speak to as much or little as you want. I'll let you kind of direct the story here. Yeah. So um, leaving at 16, I don't have a lot of contact uh, that's not true. I guess I do have some contact with uh, what's going on in the AUB, but it's very easy for me to distance myself. So I don't have all the exact in and outs. Um, I am very close to my some of my mom's sisters who live up in Pinesdale, Montana. That's another um, part of the AUB. So um, I've heard a lot of kind of what's going on on the outside. So um, one of it was one of the accusations was that my dad was accused of molestation, not from just one, but a couple daughters. And it wasn't, it was just kind of a weird situation, but I personally have never experienced that. I know I wasn't molested. I don't remember it happening. I don't feel like it happened. Um, so, but I, when your sister comes to you with a story when my sister comes to me with a story, I will not discredit her experiences or what happened to her or justify it or say it didn't happen. So 
that was very disheartening and hard for me. And it actually shaped how I reacted and interacted with my dad from then on. So I was married with a couple of kids and the story came out and it was very hard for her. And I don't need to go into the details because it's not my story to tell, but it shaped how I wanted my kids to interact with my dad before it was like, Oh, you know, we can go. If you really want to meet grandpa, I can shoot him a text or call him or something. But my history with my dad was very much, if I wanted a relationship with him, I have to seek it out. And I just didn't care to. Um, and how but many my kids siblings? started getting to the point where they would, Oh, sorry, go sorry, ahead. No, sorry. How many siblings do you have? I have nine. I mean, there's total, 10 of us. My brother. Moms. Oh, sorry. Say that again. From all your moms? Uh, 36. Okay. There's 36 of us. So, yeah. So anyway, it shaped how I decided to interact with my dad and have my kids interact with my dad. I kind of cut off the relationship for a long time because of that. Um, and then having my dad become the leader of the AUB was completely shocking. I know to a lot of members of the AUB, um, but it was shocking. Even I have a couple siblings who still are in the religion and in the AUB and fully believe it. And I remember having a very specific conversation with one of my siblings and they're saying, I am really confused. I do not understand how he can be called of God. He was our dad. I don't, I, I, I remember her just being shaken by what that this is not making any sense. How can he be called a God? He was not the greatest dad. He was kind of mean. And, and I just, you know, it's like, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't have any answers for you. Um, and can you kind of walk people I know through how that happened? Oh. So they understand how he became the leader. You know what? I don't have all the details because it kind of came out of nowhere. It was, he was not next in line after Lemoyne Jensen passed away. He was not supposed to be the next one. And all of a sudden he was. And and so I don't know if you have more information about that, but it really put a huge chasm in the AUB because there were men who were older and had been on the council longer who were next in line. In fact, it passed over two people, um, my uncle Sam and then my uncle Marvin was supposed to be next in line. And then all of a sudden it was my dad and it just, I don't know the details. It just threw me off. And since I haven't been in the religion for so long, I'm not exactly sure how that played out. What I know is he was made leader in, I think 2014 and he was on the council. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just the way that it went, you're saying that it sort of broke tradition and, and maybe just tell me what you remember about it. So obviously in 2014, you're out, you're married now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had been married 14 years and had kids and was mainstream LDS. And it kind of came of a sh as a shock. And um, I remember that when Lemoyne Jensen was the leader for a while, the next one in line, I can't remember if it was my Uncle Sam or my Uncle Marvin, but they live up in Pinesdale. And I know that my Uncle Marvin would come down once a month to go to the council meetings. And he was, by all rights, if you were to follow the church doctrine, the oldest member of the council, the longest standing member. He was really just 
the next one in line. And when I'm there, I cannot remember. It was something like my sister had told me that they'd gone, my dad and Bonnell went into a meeting with Lemoyne Jensen before he passed away and came out saying, I'm the next leader. And the Bonnell man said, yep, you are. Cause I was there and he confirmed the keys onto you. And here we are. And I think it just, a lot of people were really hurt because, because they had passed over someone who, you know, if you were to go into the church doctor and had the rights to the keys and had the rights to be the next leader. And I, I don't know exactly why they passed over. I am assuming it's because he was up in Pinesdale or I don't know, but he, they passed over some men so that he became the leader and it just kind of shook everyone to the core. I think it made a lot of people reassess whether they really believed in the AUB and in the work because of what happened with my dad. Yeah. Um, so that's about as much as I know too. And I think about as much as most people know that just that, you know, the senior members were bypassed. And then of course that same year, uh, Rosemary Williams, who is your half sister and his daughter and a friend of mine, I, I really like Rosemary. She came out publicly. She was on the cast or the show, my five wives and she came out publicly and, you know, with these allegations. And so t- do you want to talk about what that did to your family a little bit? Yeah, I think it split the family. Um, I I use that really loosely because I feel like Rosemary was probably discredited and didn't ha- hold as much clout or credibility because she left the AUB and that religion. And so then it was like, oh, she left. And therefore, who knows if she's really telling the truth. And I don't feel like that's very fair, but I feel like a lot of people just do that naturally. Oh, you're not a member. Who knows if they're making sense or if they're really telling the truth or if they're just angry and upset that so-and-so is the leader. But I, my experiences with my dad, that didn't happen to me. Do I not believe Rosemary? No, I believe her. That was her experience. If she says it happened, she knows she's an adult. She knows that she doesn't need to be throwing these accusations around willy nilly. So if that's what happened to her, then that is what happened to her. And I feel like, um, I don't, I know, I know it was hard for certain members of the family, but I, I think it comes down to for a lot of the older members or a lot of people that follow my dad, it's like, well, I'm going to just discredit and push that aside that that maybe did or didn't happen because I have to follow this religion. I have to follow this truth. And it just kind of anything that discredits or doesn't confirm that is just brushed aside, even if they're serious allegations. So um, I feel like it kind of split up the family, but not horribly. I feel like um, there are certain members that are really hurt and aren't okay with it. I know that my dad completely disagrees and and doesn't think that that happened, but it's not the first allegation that he's had. It's not the first time he's been accused of something like that. And so I think, you know, I mean, he came to one of my siblings and said, um, I, if, if I ever molested you, I'm sorry. And I think that really threw my sister off because she was like, why would he even say that to me? Why would he say to me, if I ever did something to you, I'm sorry think that really threw her off. So I don't know. I feel like I kind of came at the end of things and that I was kind of one of many children. So I didn't have a good relationship or a close relationship with my dad. And so maybe it just skipped over me. 
I don't know. I can't speak for what other people's experiences are. But certainly you witnessed physical abuse growing up. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I, I can't say that maybe my dad didn't. I know that there were men on the council who were put in jail and went through the court systems because they molested their families. And so why wouldn't, why wouldn't he? I mean, it's right there. He's, he's in these council meetings for years and years and years with these men who molested their children, boys and girls. And they were convicted of these crimes. I just don't, I mean, it's just, it's not that far. I'm like, well, your buddies were doing it. I don't know why you wouldn't either. I mean, maybe not, but I, I mean, I can't say one way or the other, but it's, it's not too far from where you're hanging out. So that's just my assumption, but I don't know. I feel like I, I kind of left so early and that wasn't my experiences that I have a hard time speaking for other people, but I would never discredit their experiences, especially something like that. Do you feel like, I mean, one of the stereotypes of polygamous groups is abuse is rampant and certainly, you know, when all these men on the council are, are, you know, being accused and put in prison for this, what, how do you contextualize that? Um, I feel like that secrecy creates more secrecy. And so, like we had talked about earlier, if you are justifying lying about something, why not lie about something else? And so I can't speak for polygamy as a whole. I know a lot of people are just trying their best to be good people, but I do feel like a lot of times there can be molestation or abuse and there's fear for women losing their kids or the state coming in and taking them or um, being in trouble for living in polygamy and then they don't get reported. And so because they're not reported, they perpetuate. I mean, it even happened in Ruland's family, even these great stalwart families, it was happening and it wasn't Ruland, but it was like his kids and they were left alone and they were poor and in secrecy and they didn't feel like they could get any outside help. So this Secrecy builds on this secrecy and there is abuse. And I have no idea if it's rampant, but if you're not, if you can't go and get help, outside help, then it's things like that are going to happen and then they're going to perpetuate because no, no one's there to stop it. No one's there to teach them something different. Yeah, that kind of aligns so with, I, with my opinions oh, on it ahead. too. No, sorry, we've got this delay. Um, okay, so we covered some, some of that topic. Do you want to talk about like you said, you're a little bit checked out now, but there is rumors of a split with Pinesdale. Do you want to give people sort of a 101 update and all of that? Um, yeah, it's so my grandpa Rulin loved Pinesdale. He had this huge love for Pinesdale. He had this idea of this utopia and that people were going to come from all over the world to go to this university up in Pinesdale and learn of the fullness of the gospel. I mean, he was just a big dreamer. And so he loved this land and he had um, his, some of his wives live up there. And I know that some of my mom's sisters live up there and it's just always been 
very dear to the AUB. I, I would, every summer I went up there because I had ants up there. So my mom would take all of us kids and shove us in a car and we'd go up to Pinesdale and spend a week or two up there every summer. And it was just this beloved place. And I feel like as time went on, it became less and less important. And there was just more chasms and more splits and more disagreements. And then to have the two men, so there was Sam Allred, which was Ruland's son, and Marvin Jessup being um, just kind of passed over for leadership. I feel like that kind of the, the people in Pinesdale were like, wait a minute, why aren't they being cho- chosen? They're next in line. I, and, and so I think it was just this betrayal and this hurt and this huge chasm that started happening in Pinesdale. And it happened quite quickly. I feel like it, it kind of confused people for a while when my dad first became prophet and they didn't quite know how to handle it. And then when the accusations of molestation and abuse came out, it kind of decided it for people. Um, I have an aunt that lives up there that is mainstream LDS. And she said that they have had floods of polygamists join their wards and so much so that they've had to split the ward a couple times. And she was so happy because um, uh, one of the apostles wrote a letter to this ward saying, you know, we love that you welcome all of these people into your ward. And my aunt was like, oh, you know, so great. We're having all of these um, polygamous AUB members join the church and isn't it beautiful? And I said, you really don't think it has anything to do with dad becoming the leader? And she just looked at me like, uh, probably. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's, it's because they don't feel part of the AUB anymore. They've been brushed over twice now. Their leaders are no longer recognized twice. So they're feeling hurt and betrayed. And that's just, of course, my perception. I don't live up there and I don't know exactly what's happening, but I'm just getting information from certain people and they're leaving in droves. It sounds like my, my aunt has let me know that there's, there's a lot of people leaving and joining the mainstream church because of my dad becoming the leader. One thing that I'm hearing too, is there's a huge, I wouldn't say huge, but the snuffer movement is quite popular up there as well. And I have no experience with the snuffer movement because my sister that lives up there is not in any church and she left years ago. And then my aunts that live up there were Ruland's daughters and they, they're very old school, very old. They have held on to my grandpa's beliefs and they are not moving. So th- my personal experience with Pinesdale, I've actually taken my kids up there for three or four summers to visit their aunts and my sister. And, and I have no personal experience with the snuffer movement and my aunts have had no experience with the snuffer movement. I know that they have talked about encouraging my uncle Marvin to start his own church because they feel like he was passed over. Um, he is declining in health. And so I don't think that's what's going to happen, but my aunts are very old school. Um, I found a letter that one of my aunts had written to my mom and she said, if only the dream of dad had become a reality. He was such a big dreamer, but I feel like a lot of people that knew my grandpa and has watched how it's progressed through the years have just felt disheartened and that the dream is gone and that it wasn't what it was supposed to be or how it was supposed to turn out. 
I think that's such a great way to to phrase, I think, what's going on. So it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, I I think that more the Mormon movement, the reason why I like the term Mormon movement is because it is so fluid. It does seem to change. And we do have this narrative of like, you know, the church never changes, God never changes, but it really does. It really does. Yeah, it really does. If you look back into the into the history, it has changed tremendously. Let's catch you up to where you are now and you know what you believe and what you're doing with your life, that kind of thing. Um, so I joined the church when I was, well, I decided when I was 16 and then I had to wait until I was 18 and those were a very long two years. Um, and then I was just happy. I was happy to be where I wanted to be. I felt like this is my life. This is everything I wanted it to be. I'm going to find a good Mormon boy and we're going to raise our children. And then when we're old, we're going to go on a mission together. And it's just, I just had this dream of, and, and I was, and I created it. I found this awesome man and we got married in the Salt Lake Temple and we started having kids and it was just great. I mean, it was everything I wanted it to be. I would look back at my life and think, I, I changed my life. I did it. And I remember the pivotal moments and, and thinking, this is a crossroad and my life can go this way or it can go this way. And I remember thinking, I'm so grateful that I chose this and that it's going this way. I mean, when you're, L- when you're mainstream LDS in Salt Lake City, Utah, wow, like, could you have made it any easier for yourself? I mean, just the culture, everything around you, everything caters to being mainstream LDS. And it was just everything I wanted to be. I had this great board and this great family and I was just on my way. And then when the accusations of my dad started coming up, I think, I don't know why, I can't really pinpoint why, but everything started crashing down around me because I had fought and defended my dad saying, you know, he's chosen to be polygamous, but, and obviously I don't agree and I choose not to do that, but these people are still trying to be so good. And then to find out he really isn't that good and he's not as one dimensional as I thought. I think it just tore everything down for me because I saw a lot of similarities between my dad and other leaders of even the mainstream church and other churches and how seemed like the rules did not apply to them. So they would preach one thing, but they would do something else so they could get away with something else. And I think that just really shook me to the core. I felt like my whole childhood was a lie and that I had been lied to, that I'd been spoon fed this utopia that was not true and not there. And I felt like it kind of carried me into how I'm raising my kids now and what do I want my life to look like now? And I'd have to say that my faith now looks a lot. I am not following blindly anymore. I question everything. Um, It looks a lot different than it did, you know, 12 years ago or whenever I got married and started having kids and just had this idea of, Oh, I've created this, wonderfully perfect world for myself and I'm so excited to be part of it and I'm just going to make it to the end and everything's going to fall into place and it's not how life is and so my faith now is still very much in question in transition 
always examining, always re-examining. I'm open to listening. Um, I feel like sometimes I have to make an extra effort to listen kindly when people are preaching to me. (laughs) I had a personal experience with the community of Christ, which I actually didn't even know existed. They're kind of a break off of my grandpa's and I didn't, I wasn't oh, even aware. And not community and, of Christ. You mean Christ church, Christ church. Sorry. Yes. I get that confused. And one of them took the opportunity to preach to me. And I remember thinking the whole time, be kind, just listen, let them tell their story. But I kind of felt like a chip on my shoulder. I'm, I've decided, I feel like there's been so many men in my life that have just decided where, how I need to believe and how I need to define God. And I finally took a step back and go, you know what? I'll figure this out on my own. Thank you. I need to figure out what this looks like. And I guess what I try to teach my kids now and how I try to live my life is listening to that inner compass. What is, what, how do I feel? How does that look to me? And I try to teach that to my kids. My kids will come home with some story and I'll be like, how did that feel to you? What do you think about that? If that's the one thing I can teach my kids and pass on is to follow that inner compass and figure out for themselves what they want their life to look at and be true to themselves. So I feel like that's kind of where I'm at now. So I feel like I've even transitioned out into what do I need? I'm tired of people telling me that I want to figure it out on my own. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think you fit in with our, our volunteer group so much because we're sort of this ragtag bunch of people all across the Mormon map, you know, trying to come down and be friends with so many different people. Yeah. And I really, the, the Fern Foundation and the project really spoke to me on many different levels. And that's because it was, and that's why it was so easy for me to go down there and volunteer. I grew up my whole life listening to these stories of how Hilldale came to be and how I have family down there because when Rulin Allred, one of his wives is actually a sister to Rulin Jess. And when the split happened, she went down with Rulin Jess and took her kids. And so then, you know, there was, there's Allreds down there. There's my family down there and my mom would talk about this loss that she felt and that she couldn't talk to her siblings anymore and she missed them. And so Hilldale, Colorado City was just this place that, that, you know, was closed and I didn't get to go see, but I have a family down there and I, I should know people down there. That's my kin. And, and so when I had this opportunity to come down and volunteer, which is one of the things I feel passionately about, it's just, it spoke to me on so many different levels. Like I need to come down there this is part of who I am. I need to come down there and do the best I can. And now we all see, now you know what I look like with no makeup on. I know what everyone else looks (laughs) like with no makeup on and no sleep. And it's, it, we have become a little family down there. It's kind of fun. Yeah, we really have. Well, I am delighted that I got to interview you. Um, I've been wanting to do it for like a year and then I think I just dropped the ball. So thank you for coming on today. Is there anything else you want to say or let people know? Um, I don't think so. Just thank you so much for this opportunity and for me to tell my story. And I think what you're doing is great. And I just feel really lucky and it's just been amazing. So thanks for this opportunity. 
Yeah, thank you. And um, do you, I always ask my guests, are you okay if people reach out to you? If so, how do they find you? Absolutely. Um, They can email me. That's probably the best way to reach me at liz.phillips at gmail.com. And the last name has two P's at the end. So the last name is P-H-I-L-L-I-P-P-S. So liz.phillips at gmail.com is probably the best way to reach me. And of course, I would love to speak to people about my experience and about their experiences. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Liz is so fun. And and I have to say this, you still have that like Pinterest Mormon look to you. And I mean that as a compliment. So <laughs> well, thank I love, you. Yeah, that, that's a weird compliment, but I mean it as a compliment. I, I just think that you're so fun and I'm so glad to have the chance to get to know you. And like I said, at the very beginning of the podcast, it was fun. We took a picture of you and Warren Jeff's son in front of... It's uh, been really neat. Yeah, it's a sort of yeah. profit wars, right? Yeah, I love it. I love that we're able to take those pictures and I love being able to talk about it. I just think it's great. Okay, well, well, Liz, thanks for coming on. All right, thank you. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>